This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Was how professional the Mexican but government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Lopez Obrador, known by his initials, AMLO, is a self-proclaimed nationalist. Critics fear his planned $10.5 billion rescue of the oil industry will increase Pemex's already deep debt burden. We have new governments in two of the most important energy producers in the hemisphere, Mexico and Brazil. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Today we have a returning guest, Lisa Vecidi, an energy expert at the Inter-American Dialogue here in Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Lisa. Thank you. It's great to be back. A few days ago, Lopez Obrador formally assumed power in Mexico, and we know he's had a lot to say about energy and sort of what he'd like to do with it. And during the campaign, of course, he um, he sort of went back and forth a little bit, but essentially landed at the line that, well, he just wanted to review existing contracts, make sure that they were fair and free of corruption, um, but otherwise didn't sound like he was going to tinker too much with the direction of the energy reforms uh, that we've seen in Mexico. His his energy secretary, a little bit different. She's much sounds much more hardline, kind of much more this nationalist, we're going to kind of take it all back type of attitude. Um, and then the other thing specifically that he said about energy, if I remember, is building a new refinery in Tabasco and then kind of hinted or said explicitly that he wanted essentially all gasoline production to come back to get to Mexico and not have to rely on importing uh, gasoline from from foreign sources. So uh, here we are, uh, early December, and the government is now in power. Has has anything, Lisa, that you've seen in the last few months since him winning the election on July 1st indicated a change in terms of a certain direction, more liberalization on one hand and then clawing it all back on the other? Anything that we've seen that you want to talk about? Well, I think he's he's made some changes in some of the specific com- comments, but I think his message has been fairly consistent since the campaign. I mean, he's not going to completely undo the reform, take it away. He's going to maintain the same framework, but I'm I think he's definitely going to make some changes. So the question is, you know, which changes will he make? And I think his orientation consistently has been around an economic nationalist agenda, which is going to drive his energy policy and having a bigger role for the government and for the state oil company. So I think specifically, um, he has talked about making changes to the, about reviewing the contracts, possibly making changes to the contracts. And I think that he probably won't change existing contracts. And he's clearly looking to court investment. He's actually complaining that there hasn't been enough investment. So he obviously does want to see foreign investment. But I also think he wants to see a bigger role for Pemex. So he may make some changes to the types of contracts we see in the new licensing rounds. You know, he, for example, could increase the fiscal take to get, um, you know, more benefit for the government. Um, he could use more sort of service type contracts or what's called production sharing contracts where the, the government has an actual um, equity stake versus concession frameworks, which are more kind of hands off. So there's some, you know, those are some nuances. I also think that he's going to try to increase Pemex's budget, and I think he's going to increase their investment in refining. 
Um, he may also return to fuel price controls. Uh, you know, gasoline prices were liberalized, which I think was a very good step because really subsidizing um, fossil fuels is never a good policy. But he's promised lower prices over and over again to voters. And um, I think he may return to price controls. And there's also questions about the timeline for the auction. Most recently, the energy minister said um, that they're going to postpone new auctions until 2021. This is a big delay. You know, we're talking about two years with no auctions. It's normal for a new government to come in, maybe delay a little. They want to see some changes. But this is a big delay. He may walk that back um, because if they really wait for two years for new auctions, then they're going to see um, you know, a, a reduction in oil production. And I think that, that that's not what they want at the end of the day. At, at one of his first uh, morning press conferences, he now has these 7 a.m. press conferences now, which I'm sure the press probably hates, but he, he's already had several of them. And he got a question uh, kind of along these lines for what's going to happen with the contracts. And he essentially said, you know, we're going to continue. We're not going to break any contracts. But then he did say something interesting. He, he went out of his way to say, well, you know, of the contracts that have been signed, We've seen very little actual investment, and we've seen no exploration. Now, I take it there's much more to the story than that. Is 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 it? Uh, what is the timeline in general in the market between you know signing, a, say, a deep well contract, and and starting to actually put in the investment? Is it is that sort of market driven that the company's going to wait until prices are favorable before they? They do that, or is this delay real, or does, is this almost sounds like Lopez Obrador kind of coming up with a pretext for saying, well, you know, here we are, we've, we've done all these bidding rounds, and they've gone, and the companies aren't actually stepping up to the plate and committing the investment. Um, I think that the timing has been completely normal for the industry. Um, you know, some of the pledges, when, when you, sometimes you, you sign a contract, you make an investment pledge over a period of time, if you don't invest over the agreed upon time, you have to relinquish the field. So those types of things are already stipulated in the contract. Um, you know, not all the investment is made on day one. And he's also complained that there hasn't been any production. And it's true. There's been a total of like 13,000 barrels a day. If you look at all the contracts that have been awarded since the reform, that's a joke. But that's normal because you're still in the exploration phase. You have to do seismic, you have to drill exploratory wells. Until you find commercial quantities, then you start to you know, have, see real production. So I think that, that um, it's a sign that he wants to see more, but really we're talking about you know, normal timeline for the industry. And so what happens if they reach the end of that period of, uh, of the contract, and which they're supposed to do a certain amount of investment in, in X years, and they and they don't hit it. Or what's the normal practice? Do you just roll it over? You ask for an extension, or does that set up a you know a reason for AMLO to go and go? I, I see, I knew it. These were all you know not real investments, and I'm going to take them all back. Well, I mean, he hasn't talked about doing that, and I think that the timeline for that is so long that I don't think he would be concerned with it. Um, so you know, there would be like 20 years before you know they would have to relinquish the contracts. There could be an extension. But I don't think that that's something that would be a concern under his term. So I think it's more getting activity starting very quickly. But then you get this mixed signal of, you know, I'm also postponing auctions. So that's not very encouraging to investment. And he also actually postponed the renewable energy auction. Uh, Mexico was supposed to hold its fourth renewable energy auction under the reform. But that was actually a 
looks like it's just going to be a very temporary delay um, from it was supposed to be December. Now it's maybe going to be moved to February. That was more of a usual sort of we want this process to happen on our watch, but not nothing that's sending signals to investors that they should be concerned about the stability of the framework. What does the renewable energy picture look like in Mexico? What what sort of existing investment is there and what's the potential for that? Well, the energy reform has been hugely successful. Um, and very interestingly, the, in, the, in the clean energy auctions, you had competing technologies, wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, and um, basically efficient natural gas. And wind and solar actually did very well, had very low bids. Um, and actually were more competitive in the auctions than natural gas. Um, And three auctions have been held so far. Initially, in the first two, the CFE, the state utility, was the only off-taker. And in the third, there was some private generation, some private um, off-takers. And then in the fourth, we actually uh, had an event last week with the former Undersecretary of Electricity, and he said that he expected about 30% private off-takers for the fourth auction. So what we're seeing is renewable technologies, very competitive, among the most competitive prices in the world in Mexico, and increasing private investment. And so I think that's really a sign that the changes that were made as part of the energy reform, both the electricity industry law and the energy transition law, have really been successful. And that's why, actually, I don't expect a lot of changes under AMLO in the power sector and renewables area. But it still seems like in his heart of hearts, if he could take Mexico back to the days of energy, you know, essentially self-sufficiency or, you know, a, a dominant, Pemex is a dominant producer and, and so on. Is that even feasible now for Mexico, given world energy markets and, and price competitiveness of U.S. natural gas? If Mexico even tried, could they go back to those days? I don't think they could. I think if they did, they would continue to see a decline in production. And that's why this, that's why the energy reform was necessary. I think you could go back to Pemex being a monopoly, but you but production would be affected. Um, and I think what happened is Mexico was able to rely on one largely, you know, one very large field, Cantarel, that was hugely productive, and another large field, Kumalupsap, and those are in natural decline, and they need to invest a lot in exploration and find new resources, and it's very unlikely that Pemex would ever be able to do that on their own. Uh, one more question about Mexico, and we'll start talking about Brazil, Lisa. The, the, um, the new NAFTA, the USMCA, whatever we're going to call it today, uh, been signed, we know that, um, are there any things there in the in the new energy chapters that you think are going to significantly affect energy trade uh, between not just Mexico and the United States, but in North America? Well, for for um, investment in Mexico for upstream oil and gas companies, there really aren't any significant changes. Basically, what the companies wanted to see was maintaining the investment protections, in particular, that they had already under under the original NAFTA, and those were maintained where there there was a political statement added to the NAFTA dis, that that Lopez Obrador's team added saying we want to have we have the right to change our constitution and and change our energy policy. Well that was true anyway. Any co- country can change their constitution and NAFTA can't stop that. So it, it, that was more symbolic. Where the companies that were affected negatively by the changes are ones that don't have a direct contract with the government. So um power generation, pipeline builders, refiners, 
they have commercial contracts, and commercial contracts don't have investor protection under NAFTA or under the USMCA. So they're actually trying to see if they can still make changes so that they can get those protections, because that's a significant sort of negative impact for them. Uh, is there anything in there you think that the U.S. Congress and in the energy chapter specifically that they're going to want to change or that the Canadians are going to exert pressure? Or can we more or less see USMCA uh, energy chapters go through unscathed? Well, I think on the Mexican side, I don't think that they are going to be asking for any changes. Um, I think that the idea for them was let's have this agreed upon, everything agreed to under Peña Nieto, have him sign it, and the new government sort of wash our hands of it. So I think their preference is just to you know, ha pass it through Congress and pass it quickly. I think maybe with the U.S. having a, a new makeup of Congress, it's more complicated. But I think on the Mexican side, they really just want to sort of move on and have it not be a problem for them. Um, okay, let's talk about Brazil. Uh, we, of course, have a new, relatively new government in Brazil with Jair Bolsonaro in, in charge of uh, of the government there. Um, but first, let's set the, let's give a little bit of context for our listeners who may not be familiar with Brazil's role in, in our energy um, uh, trade. You know, what what are what's the order of magnitude, say, compared to Mexico in terms of how much do we get from Brazil? How much do we sell to Brazil across the board? Well, Brazil is a, a major producer of oil, um, but because it's such a big economy, it consumes a large share of its own production. And it doesn't really export much crude oil to the U.S. at all. Um, it, it exports more to China and to other parts of the world. So it's significant in terms of oil markets and as an oil producer. But in terms of the trade with the U.S., it's it's actually pretty minimal. Okay. But it definitely affects world oil prices. It's at that level where... It's a major producer, and it also has the potential to be one of the biggest producers in the world if it could actually develop its its pre-salt to the full potential. Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk about that a little bit. In terms of what Bolsonaro, uh, you know, what, what do we know about his views towards the energy sector or and or the views of his key advisors on energy? What, what direction can we expect them to go? For the oil sector, my impression overall is that most likely the policies under Temer will be maintained. So the most significant are holding regular auctions for upstream contracts, um, maintaining not very strict local content requirements, which had been a real bottleneck for the industry, uh, continuing with the transfer of rights where the government's going to be able to auction off new areas that were owned by Petrobras. So probably generally these things will continue. And one of the continuing sort of complaints of the industry was that the environmental licensing process was extremely slow and unpredictable, and he may even facilitate that. But I also think that Bolsonaro, in many ways, his policies are not so clear because on the one hand, he has these some advisors who are very in favor of privatization. So his incoming economy minister, Paulo Gedges, the person that he uh, that will be running Petrobras, Castelo Branco, has a very um, sort of market-oriented track record. Went to the University of Chicago, was on Petrobras's board, ran the mining company Vali. But at the same time, he also has some advisors that are very nationalist. And when he was a congressman, he also supported a lot of protectionist and nationalist legislation. And in particular, his military advisors, he has somebody coming from the Navy who's going to be the new energy minister. So I think there's also a big focus on security and seeing 
companies like Petrobras as a strategic asset. And I think you also see some of this in his kind of renewables and environmental policy. I think that he he may very well continue with renewable energy policy under um, under the previous governments, which has also had these clean energy auctions and you know brought in a lot of private investment. But I think that he sees um, kind of environmental protection as being an impediment to economic growth, an impediment to national security. He threatened to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Um, the Brazil was supposed to host the next climate change meeting next year, and he actually decided to withdraw. So I think in clean energy, we're not going to see a lot of support. And, and I think these sort of nationalist tendencies may affect you know, oil and gas and electricity policy as well, and including um, the fuel pricing policy. There's a question about whether he'll continue with a sort of liberalized fuel price or he'll also, like possibly in Mexico, want to have fuel price controls and subsidies. Um, let's contrast a little bit the role of Petrobras and, and Pemex, uh, the two state oil companies. You know, in Mexico, Pemex provides a big chunk of the government's tax revenue, and it's also sort of frequently uh, implicated in kind of corruption scandals in terms of slush funds or you know tied to the uh, the pre or or the the willing party. Um, what about Petrobras? Does it does it play a similar role in terms of you know, how much money does it contribute to the government tax base? And then what kind of reputation does it have? Uh, recognizing we are talking about Brazil, where sort of corruption's on a whole different scale there, right? But what, is Petrobras generally viewed as sort of well-run, efficient, non-corrupt, or, or what is the, the take there? Well, Petrobras is not as significant in terms of it, the share that it gives in taxes and royalties to the national government, the way that it in, is in Mexico. It is really important for local governments, especially the state of Rio de Janeiro and the city of Rio is highly dependent on the taxes. And then as a, I think Brazil is a, a bigger and more diversified you know, tax base. Up until the last few years, Petrobras was seen as a real model of a state oil company. It was, you know, the one model that you really said a state oil company can be efficient. It, it was a real leader in research and development. And now I think, obviously, the corruption scandal has been a real disaster and, and, and really revealed a lot of terrible things going on in the company. But in addition to that, under the two PT governments, there was a real movement towards state intervention and in decisions that normally should have been made by the company itself. And the most prominent was the fuel pricing policy, where they essentially forced Petrobras to keep fuel prices down, which forced it to accept losses. And that was really detrimental to the company. And I think now what Tem Temer has taken it in a different direction and, and has really tried to unwind that debt divest in, in areas that doesn't make sense for the state oil company to be invested in. So trying to take it back in that direction. But certainly it's it's not quite the great efficient company that, you know, it, it was thought to be. Um, and then finally on uh, on investment, uh, particularly U.S. investment in, in sort of the new opportunities, assuming that, you know, they, they go forward with their bid or their auctions. 
what kind of stake do U.S. companies have in in uh, future oil or energy exploration of any type in Brazil? Well, there have U.S. companies have an increasing stake. So just like European majors and other companies, they've been participating in the recent bid rounds. So Exxon has recently acquired a, a really extensive acreage in Brazil. Chevron is also a major player. There's some smaller independent U.S. companies like Anadarko that are also in Brazil. And also on the power sector side, you've got U.S. investment, the biggest company being AES. Um, so you definitely have you know, a lot of U.S. investment. I think there'll be a, an increase in that. And I think what U.S. companies as well as other companies are looking for is kind of stability in the investment climate. Um, so Lisa, there's actually one more topic I wanted to talk about that, that I hadn't mentioned earlier, and it's Venezuela. Uh, you know, we tended not to, or at least I don't tend to focus on Venezuela anymore because uh, it's just imploding. It's always been imploding for the last year. But in terms of Venezuelan oil, um, are policymakers and producers and other companies already factoring in, uh, you know, this this sort of steep and continuing decline of Venezuelan oil? Or, or is that stabilized in terms of numbers? What does is, what is that variable do to calculations in terms of production, consumption, investment, et cetera, in the, in the region I'm talking about? Well, I mean, it's definitely affecting global oil markets. I think that's really the biggest impact is that there is – production continues to decline at a, at a steep rate. And I think all the expectations are, will, are that that will, trend will continue I don't think we're at a point where we can see any sign that there's going to be some sort of reversal. And so the biggest impact is really on global oil markets, because at the end of the day, you know, whether oil comes from one region or another is not so important. It's really, you know, a global market determining prices. And in terms of specifically where oil's going, you know, the U.S. continues to be a major importer. So it, it does matter to the U.S. because if they're not getting oil from Venezuela, they have to get it from somewhere else. And basically, it's mostly heavy oil. So the U.S. has um, increased imports from Canada, from Mexico, from Colombia. Some of the other heavy oil suppliers in the region are continuing to fill that gap. Uh, so one day, Petavesa will need to be rebuilt. We don't know what day that is. You know, it could be next month. It could be two years from now. And it'll be an enormous sum of money, right, that's required to sort of rebuild this, this hollowed-out oil industry in Venezuela. Um, are oil companies already sort of planning for that day, setting aside billions and billions of dollars? Or what sort of th- strategic thinking has been done about rebuilding Venezuela's oil economy after one day we'll see some sort of turnaround or collapse. My impression is not that the companies are waiting. You know, my my impression right now is that most of the companies that are in Venezuela are sort of looking to sell and looking to get out. Um, You know, a number of companies like BP have completely exited the country. And I think the remaining ones are, are kind of struggling to make a profit. You know, this is public knowledge. It's they're not making profits in Venezuela. And I don't think that they're, you know, they're looking at what are their investments going to be over the next year? Where are they going to go into? They're really interested in Brazil, really interested in Mexico. I think they've written off Venezuela for now. So we could see a situation where it, you know, the trend gets worse and worse and the Venezuela essentially goes dark or very, very low production for, for a long time, right? Because these aren't things you can just do overnight, right? Rebuild the entire oil sector, I imagine. Yes, I think it will It will take a lot of time, and especially because the way that operations have worked in some areas, especially in the more mature fields, like around Lake Maracaibo, 
the way that they shut down wells, they didn't shut them down properly. So, uh, you know, engineers say that some these wells actually you won't be able to get them back up and running because they were not shut down in the right way. So some some of the production actually could never be recovered. Wow. But in some you still have the Orinoco potential is still there. It's still huge. It would be very costly. It would require a lot of infrastructure. It requires it's very heavy oil, so you either have to blend it with light oil or build upgraders, which cost billions of dollars. So it it certainly the, the potential will continue to be there, but it will be it will require a big investment. I think if you you could send a signal very quickly to investors globally that you have a good investment climate, and that would help get things running quickly. But in terms of the, it would still take several years to get production, you know, back up to where it was before. So we've managed to cover three countries in the region already. Did, did I miss anything here? Colombia, Ecuador, is there anything else going on in the energy world, in, in uh, whether in oil, gas, renewables, that is, grabs your interest? <laughs> well, I think you hit, I think you hit the main countries in terms of energy production. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's also in Colombia, there's a new government. So the new government is trying to see what they can do there, mostly to address the relationships with communities. There's been a lot of opposition, whether it's to building hydroelectric dams or to, you know, mining or to oil extraction. So that's kind of the main issue that the government is trying to deal with there. They have a plan, but it remains to be seen whether it will work. Um, so I think there's a story on energy for every single country. But I think we touched on the Good. most important ones. Well, one of the best things about this podcast, I always feel a lot smarter at the end of the podcast than I did before. But Lisa, thanks very much for joining me today, uh, talking about energy in the hemisphere. And I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back at some point. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.